You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. There, there should be enough. Uh, these, these little outlines are floating through. I'm going to try to do this for every single class, um, just because uh, one, I don't like PowerPoint, uh, and I don't like PowerPoint. Uh, and then two, uh, I don't know if you've read the the research that actually it turns out PowerPoint is making it stupid. Uh, so um, uh, that actually it's it's ineffectual in helping people retain. Uh, things. And so actually uh, writing things down helps you uh, understand better. And uh, also uh, you can have a little bit of a roadmap of uh, where I plan on going today. So let's pray. Oh God, we pray that we would ever and only set forth your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Rather than just, you know, do teachings on the articles, which can actually be a complete academic endeavor, uh, and we are going to get into some academic stuff today, or what seems to be academic, but actually has an impact on us personally. Uh, I, I want to make sure that uh, what we're doing is rooted in the Bible, and so I'll be doing some uh, scriptural work uh, throughout our teachings as well. Uh, it, it, it actually, the, the articles were one of the last uh, historical confessions or documents that took the form uh, that they have, and it was based on Roman law. Uh, Roman law was uh, was copious, uh, to say the least. And so, what uh, Roman law did is they took laws and they digested them down into memorable little articles. And so, they weren't the full understanding of what the law was, but at least gave you a comprehensive understanding of what the law was. And in the same way, churches of, uh, at the time of the Reformation took that tradition and created these articles. Uh, so the Lutherans did this, we did this, where obviously, I mean, what are you going to say about God? I mean, is, let's see, how many sentences do we have? We have two sentences uh, in here. Uh, that, that's deficient, but of course that's not, that's not the point. Uh, but the point was is that the Reformers wanted everyone to understand where the Church of England stood uh, on these issues, and you can pretty much understand that from this. The other thing that I'll say, just to pick up, because it seems like so long ago that we did our uh, uh, introduction, is that um, our articles, as well as most of the Lutheran articles, start with God. They start with God. Now, the shift away from articles happened uh, in the 17th century. Uh, You can see things like the Westminster Catechism, uh, which is a question and answer format. And most catechisms are in that. And that was actually uh, not really a theological decision. It was more of an educational decision of how do people learn. And so they'd ask a question, and they'd provide an answer. And, of course, Certain confessions that came out later on after ours actually start with the Bible uh, and not uh, with God because of the understanding of knowing God from the Bible. The other thing that I would say is that uh, the articles are meant to be the interpretive lens through which we view the prayer book. 
So if you're reading the prayer book and you wonder, what does that mean? Or if there's any sort of ambiguity, if you want more clarity, you go to the articles. Now, sometimes they don't provide the clarity that we wish that they, that they would, uh, but uh, the articles are meant, uh, the prayer book is meant to be read in light of the articles and not the articles in light of the prayer book. It's a very important point because right now we're spending a lot, of, well, we have for the past 400 years uh, been arguing over what the prayer book means, and in the last 150 years, We've not even brought the articles into the conversation when that is exactly what they're for. And again, as by way of reminder, uh, the first eight articles are things that every Christian believes. Uh, nine through 34 would be things that would make uh, us Protestant. Uh, 35 through 37 are things uh, that would actually only be specific to Anglicanism, and we'll get to those. And then 38 and 39 are important, but... They're more civil uh, matters, but they do matter when it comes to talking about denominations. So we'll get to those uh, later on. So all Christians should be able to agree on the first eight. All Protestants should be able to agree on those in addition to 9 and 34. And then Anglicans uh, can come to agreement on three of those, uh, 35 through 37, that make us uh, Anglican. Okay. Well, let's talk about God. Well, setting forth God's glory uh, is uh, the whole point of our human existence. And the doctrine of God is of the utmost importance because it controls the whole of our lives. What we think about God, uh, who He is, um, what He's like, is going to determine uh, the whole course of our lives and how we have our daily existence. As a person thinks about God, that is to say, as he or she thinks about ultimate reality, so our standards of behavior, value, and relations with other people are determined. And, and we can see that uh, in our world today. So uh, I don't think that it's a coincidence that in countries where there is a very high degree of not just atheism, but hostility toward belief in God, much less Christian belief, uh, you will see that worked out in its daily life. So one of the areas that we're seeing that worked out in right now is in northern European countries, especially Scandinavian countries, uh, which really have um, gone totally the way of secularism uh, to the point that now they're having conversations and have enacted legislation that allows for the euthanizing of people uh, without their consent. Just you're co you cost too much. And so what is that based on? What's behind that? Well, I think it's safe to say that it's based on what we think about God. And if we are all human beings created in God's image, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, you're entitled and inherent to certain values uh, in your human existence. Um, and that was, of course, a founding principle uh, for the United States of America, right, that we have inalienable rights, um, and those are endowed to us uh, by our Creator. Now, we're going to get to the Founding Fathers in a minute and what they actually believed about God, but at a very base level, a belief in God is going to influence uh, how you interact with people and uh, how you're going to live your daily life and existence. Now, the, the issue, though, is that our natural default position is actually to have a belief in God or a belief in a higher power. It's ingrained in all of us. 
Right? The Bible talks about uh, the law being written on our heart, not in the devotional sense, but actually a sense of right and wrong. So you can go to any culture in the world, uh, and I would love for you to find me a culture that says that stealing is A-OK, uh, or that fairness is not a doctrine that, that you would constantly put forward. So you don't even need Christianity. I mean, C.S. Lewis has a wonderful illustration of this in... Um, maybe it's mere Christianity, I don't remember. But um, where he says the little boys are all sitting around their lunch table and uh, one boy says, hey, I'll give you a bit of my orange if you give me half of your sandwich. And this guy says, agreed. Well, the guy eats the entirety of his sandwich and the other kid's orange. The other kid rightfully says, wait a minute, that's not fair. Now, the other boy is not going to say, it's totally fair because I have a different standard and this is how it works and I actually didn't... No, the other boy is going to come up with some other rationale as to why what his doctrine of fairness is. He's going to try to get around it. No one's going to actually say, you're right. Well, maybe they would. I mean, I do all the time. I mean, in our house, our girls constantly say, this is not fair. And so we institute days of fairness. And so the other day, we had a day of fairness and one of them shoved their sister, so I went up and shoved them. And I said, fair. Uh, and, uh, and so everybody got what was coming to them that day. They don't like fairness. Um, because the bottom line is, is that as much as we say we cry out for justice, what we all really need is mercy. Right, that's right. So everyone around the world um, has an innate idea that there is a higher power uh, the Bible talks about this in Psalms uh, and elsewhere. The heavens declare the handiwork of God. Paul in Romans 1, that we can look around the world and we can say there is a God and we are without excuse. It's there. Uh, there was a Roman Catholic theologian uh, who was teaching these men who were going to become Roman Catholic priests, and he would always open up his class with a little story and then a question. And he would say, he would say, there was an anthropologist who had some students with them, and they were going through some dark jungle where they came upon this native uh, sacrificing uh, a chicken to a corn god. And the anthropologist turned to his students and said, look at this primitive native. Uh, oh, that he would be enlightened uh, and understand that all this is just tomfoolery and nonsense. And then the professor turns to his class and says, whose side are you on, the native or the anthropologist? Now, at first blush, because of our Western minds, we kind of lean toward the anthropologist, don't, don't we? Uh, but the guy killing the chicken, at least he understands the need for blood. Right? He understands the need for atonement. He understands the need of something or someone outside of himself to come and, and rescue him. And so, of course, we want to go up and put our hand around the guy and say, look, you never have to kill another chicken again. Right, because Jesus has died uh, for you uh, and has set you free, and he's a once and for all sacrifice. Uh, but at least he's got it right. So it really is in the Western world, and it's not something, again, that we're born with. So men like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, uh, people like that, they came to their atheism uh, through a series of events by a process where they actually had to say, I'm taking it all in, there is no God, which means what? They were turning their back on what they already knew to be true and then spent the rest of their lives, some of them still who are still alive, uh, trying to uh, justify uh, atheistic belief 
and sang that really the problem in the world uh, is, is religion. Now, that's not to say that there aren't problems uh, with uh, religion, but I would say, well, I think that we ought to take a close look at the religion, uh, but you're mistaking religion for God. Uh, and our, uh, so they're really, you know, I mean, here's another thing. At the time of the Reformation, nobody was an atheist. Nobody. And so the Reformers set forth this acknowledgement that there is a God. They get specific in a minute. Uh, and then they just proceed from there uh, with uh, the assumption that everybody simply uh, believes in God. This is not something that is up for dispute at the time uh, of the Reformation. It's just, it's simply uh, a given. And uh, in the West, I think that we, we do take for granted, uh, uh, or actually we don't, um, the understanding that, uh, that in the rest of the world, it's really hard to find an atheist. I mean, you go to any other place other than the Western Hemisphere, and it's actually very difficult to, to find an atheist. I thought it was funny about 10 years ago when Gallup did a poll of religious life in America. Uh, they were surveying people in the African-American community, and you may remember this, that just 10 years ago in the African-American community in the United States, they could not find one African-American who was an atheist. Like, they, they actually said, we broke our rules and started polling more people just to see if we could, and they said, and we couldn't. We could. Now, that doesn't mean that they're Christians, but all of them said that they have a, a belief in a higher power. I'd also say that I think that the number of folks who are atheists in the United States are blown out of proportion. And by that, I mean the understanding that that's the only language they have. They think, well, if I'm not a Christian, then, then I must be an agnostic uh, or an atheist. When in fact, when you start talking to people and say, hey, what do you believe spiritually? They actually have significant spiritual beliefs. And they'll, they'll talk, actually, they'll say, it's so funny, someone said, well, I'm, I'm kind of an atheist. And I said, well, it's kind of like being kind of pregnant. Uh, you either are or you're not. Uh, and they said, well, you know, I believe in God, but, and I'm like, well, then you're not an atheist. Uh, but tell me what you believe. And even here in Birmingham, uh, about a month ago, we were spending some time with a, a couple. Both of them grew up in churches here in Birmingham. And, uh, and I made an offhand remark, and I said, well, it's like the parable of the prodigal son. And they said, what? I said, you know the parable of the prodigal son? And they said, no. And I began to tell them, and they'd never heard it before. And, they, and the, the husband actually said, now let me, st- let me get this right. The dad throws a party for the bad one? I don't believe it. I mean, it was like I was 2,000 years ago in front of Jesus again. I mean, they'd never heard this thing. They really had never. And so they even, they're, they're not even uh, given the tools intellectually, uh, to make a decision for Jesus, much less uh, a decision, uh, or moreover, a decision uh, for, for God. And yet, uh, in the world in which we live, what we think about God determines a whole lot. For instance, I mean, one of the things about talking about God as Trinity uh, means that God is personal. That God is personal. And the culture that we live in we mistake autonomy for freedom. We, we think that they're actually synonymous when they're not. And so people say, well, I want to be free, I want to be free. Uh, but actually what they're moving toward 
is autonomy, which can really cause you to shrivel up and, and become nothing. I mean, at this point in our own lives, how many of us actually have to leave the house for anything? I mean, I love Amazon Prime. I mean, my man is, the, my girls call him uh, mama's boyfriend because he's there every day and he leaves her gifts. He leaves her gifts right there. Uh, and um, I, I'm really uh, grateful uh, for that. And then uh, a wonderful Birmingham company shipped. Do y'all do that? Where they deliver your groceries uh, to, your, uh, to your doorstep. Uh, and, uh, and even the language that we use, I've noticed it's changed generationally. I was asking somebody on staff the other day who's younger than me, if you can believe it. I said, well, did you talk to so-and-so? And I said, yeah, I talked to him." And then in the course of the conversation, I realized they had texted. And I said, you didn't talk to them. Right? You didn't talk. But for them, that was actually, yes, I did. Right? They saw that as personal communication uh, with uh, another uh, human being. And if you saw a couple years ago, it was the Joaquin Phoenix movie, uh, Her. Was it Joaquin Phoenix? No, he's dead, isn't he? Now, which one's dead? River Phoenix. Um, uh, her, the movie about the man who falls in love uh, with his basically Siri app. Uh, it's not a comedy. Uh, and I kind of rolled my eyes at it. And then the next week on NPR, All Things Considered, they had a panel of uh, psychiatrists and psychologists. And all of them said, oh, this is possible. You know, don't underestimate the ability of a human being to connect with anything that seems to have intelligence or uh, a personality, uh, which is why you're seeing uh, even people um, uh, petitioning the courts to be able to uh, marry their pets. Um, and, uh, and, and pretty soon, um, why not uh, marry uh, an app? It's a big thing in Asia right now, these, um, these robots uh, that, uh, that people are, uh, are really getting into. Uh, so uh, this is upon us right now. And so if you believe that God is impersonal, uh, then uh, you're likely to be headed toward uh, autonomy, and it's going to be difficult for you uh, to communicate uh, with uh, individuals. But let's take a look at, uh, at Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 22 uh, through 34 before I get any further in this. Uh, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The word of the Lord. Okay. 
So right out of the gate, Paul says, see, you know that this unknown God, there's a belief in God, you come to that naturally. It's been revealed to you. that's, That's ingrained in all of us. However, that's not enough. It's not enough. That there's not just a natural revelation, but there's a specific and divine revelation in the person of Jesus Christ and in the Word of God, right? Remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? The Ethiopian eunuch is going along in the book of Acts in his chariot after going up to Jerusalem, and uh, he's reading from the prophet Isaiah, and Philip's running along the side of the chariot and uh, says, do you understand what you're reading? The Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I know unless somebody explains it to me? How can I know unless someone explains it to me? And so there is a, uh, now what I would say about that is not, see, this is why we need pastors. Uh, Pastors are not mediators between you and God. Now, we all do need help in understanding God's word. But remember, if God's word is difficult to understand, the problem is not the word. The problem is us. (laughs) We're the problem. Uh, I asked a Hebrew scholar once, a rabbi, whether or not uh, it said something like um, in the Old Testament, Uh, And this is actually a big difference between uh, Christianity and uh, every other faith, uh, where it says the Hebrew here is is obscure. And I asked him, I said, when those points come up in the Old Testament, how do you handle them? And he said, oh, he said, the Hebrew is not obscure. The Hebrew is always clear. It's 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 the translator that's having a hard time with the obscurity. Right? I mean, he's the obscure one. He needs to, to, to focus in, or she needs to focus in and get it right. And yet there is a place uh, for us uh, to preach and to expound the scriptures, and that's what Philip does with the Ethiopian eunuch. And the eunuch is actually grappling with the word, and he says, you know, I don't understand who is, I, is, that, is, the, is Isaiah talking about himself? Is he talking about another? And that's when Philip sees his entree and says, I'm going uh, to tell you about uh, the Lord Jesus. But it takes a specific and divine revelation. Uh, we don't come to Christianity naturally. I mean, that's the thing about Christianity. It's not a natural religion. It doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive. Right? What is intuitive is this. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. That's natural religion, right? And, and, we, just, and we praise God for Kim Kardashian. And, uh, and, we, and so that uh, all those people make us look uh, really good or, or really awful, dastardly people uh, that have lived throughout uh, the centuries. Uh, but what Jesus does is he turns all that on, on the ear and says, actually, no, uh, heaven uh, is full of sinners and hell is full of the self-righteous. That's actually what, what the census of the afterlife looks like. And so this is not something that we would come to naturally. Or even you think about something like the incarnation. And this is kind of hearkening back to my friends who are saying, like, let me get this straight. The dad throws a party for the bad one? That's not what we do, right? To echo Mark's sermon this morning in the parable of the prodigal son, who would we rather have as the son? The good one. The dutiful one. Not the bad one. And yet that's the one that actually enters into the kingdom. He's the one who comes into uh, the party. Or you do look at, at the incarnation when God comes and dwells amongst us as a man. I mean, if I'm writing the story, I'm like, look, big white horse, big old sword, crown, let's make it happen. Right? 
Instead, how does God come? He's a baby. He comes as a baby. He's born uh, and laid in a feeding trough. Uh, he, he grows up in, in Nazareth. And, I mean, Nazareth, is, they've, got a, they've got a reputation. Remember what's, uh, what's said? Well, we've, we've seen the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And what's the response? Anything good come out of Nazareth? You can't be serious. Right? It, it's all backwards. Uh, what the world sees as good actually is often bad. And what we perceive as bad is actually often good. Right? That's, that's Good Friday. And you pull the disciples on Good Friday, and you ask them how good it was. Right? They'd all run away. They thought, this is it. This is the end. Not just the end of our ministry, but uh, maybe the end of us. Uh, and yet, when it seemed that God was as distant as he could possibly be uh, from the world, he'd never been closer. Uh, when we were hating God more than we've ever hated him, he was actually loving us more than he's ever loved us. Now, how do we know that? Did we just kind of feel our way to it? Did we? No, we know it because we read it here. Right? The Bible is our interpretive lens to actually be able to see a thing for what it is uh, because our hearts are going to lead us astray. And so we do need a specific revelation, uh, and the only way that we can know who Jesus is and what he's come to do and what he's done for us is in God's word through his divine revelation. And that's what Paul begins to appeal to. Now, he gets cut off. He actually doesn't even get to mention Jesus' name because he brings up, what, the resurrection of the dead. And that ends the conversation immediately. So he doesn't even get beyond just that, uh, the first bit of what he had intended on, uh, on preaching. Uh, but I imagine that he uh, would have gotten there as uh, he always does. And so we find from this specific revelation uh, yes, that God is ultimately made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, but we also understand about the nature of God, and this is where our reformers are really, really helpful. Um, where's my, there it is. Uh, so we find that God is everlasting, without body, parts, or passions, and he's of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, and he's the maker and preserver of all things all things visible and invisible. And so first off, that God is everlasting, right? That he's, he's not confined by time uh, or space, that he has always been. He's always been uh, and always will be. Uh, he's without body, parts, or passions. Now, one of the things that we see here is that this article is actually based upon a... Um, the first article of the Augsburg Confession, uh, which I know most of you have memorized by heart, uh, that was written by the Lutherans in 1530. And in it, uh, this is what uh, they say. Uh, that is to say, there is one divine essence which is called and which is God, eternal, without body, without parts, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, visible and invisible. Does that sound familiar? Well, we just plagiarize that. That's, that's all, we, uh, all we did. So it's very funny that many of these articles, uh, we looked to the Lutherans for the first several, and then we looked to Switzerland for, for, about, for the, basically the last three quarters uh, of, uh, of the articles. Uh, so, but, one, but, uh, but uh, 
Cranmer mixes it up, and partly for the reason why he mixes it up is that he's just got a way with words. And so he's trying to put all these sort of poetic components in it, uh, but sometimes it can get a little bit lost. And so what does he mean that he is without body, parts, or passions? Well, in some sense, what he means by body is that, one, God doesn't have a body, but of course we know that he does. What body does God have? Jesus. Well, that's, that's true. Well, see, y'all are so good. Uh, but, uh, but actually, Jesus is God, and so he had a human uh, body. And so that's not what that means. It's not denying the incarnation. But what it's saying is that he's not limited to someone with a human body. Right? He, he's not confined or subject to the rules of nature as a human being would be. Right? And he's, not, he's not made up uh, of a body, nor is he made up uh, in parts, and nor does he have passions. The Greek, I mean, the Latin word that's used here is better translated as the fact that he is impassable. He's impassable. Uh, I want to read uh, something very quickly from Gerald Bray. These classes aren't long enough. Um, about what does it mean that God is impassable. In modern times, the notion of divine impassibility has come under attack by those who claim that God must be able to, quote, feel our pain, to suffer alongside us. So that's what impassable means, that he's without any sort of passion or feeling, that he's removed from the situation. But actually, that's not exactly what it means. Anything less than that, this argument goes, makes him a cold and remote deity and not the loving Savior revealed to us in Scripture. There are two things wrong with this assumption. First of all, impassibility was never intended to make God remote from human concerns, but rather to insist that his power and sovereignty can in no way be diminished by a suffering inflicted from outside himself. It is there to remind us that he cannot be weakened by any disability which might call into question his power to save us, nor can he be deflected from his purposes by knee-jerk emotional reactions. The other thing wrong with this point of view is that it assumes that a savior must share the suffering of the person he is trying to save, which is false. A doctor does not have to have his patient's illness in order to cure him, nor would it be very helpful if someone intending to rescue a person who has fallen down a hole were to jump into it in order to demonstrate his solidarity with the victim. I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, God in his love for us alleviates our suffering overcomes it, and will eventually eliminate it. He cares for our pain without having to endure it himself, which is what makes him our Savior and not just a fellow sufferer. Now, of course it means that Jesus suffered, right? It, doesn't, uh, it is absolutely true uh, that the Son of God suffered and died in his human nature, and in that sense, we can say that God suffered and died. Um, and so, but at the same time, uh, to think that God is somehow um, uh, a easily able to be cajoled uh, or that he's affected or even shocked uh, by the things that happen in our world uh, would be to undermine his sovereignty, which is not what the Bible says. In fact, uh, it's good that God is impassable. Why? Because he continues on deliberately in his plan. One of the great mistakes that people often will make is this understanding that God is going along there in the Garden of Eden and everything's going really well, and then he wakes up from his Sabbath nap and says, whoa, what happened? Whoa, 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 whoa. What happened? 
And then all of a sudden he has to enact plan B, who is Jesus. Not the way the Bible talks about it. Jesus was the plan all along. Now that does get us into some really uh, difficult territory. Of So you're saying that God made uh, man uh, knowing that they were going to fall and... Uh, we can, and we can try to unpack all that. In fact, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about why that was, except to say that Jesus is the divine plan. Right? That that actually had to happen in order for Jesus to save the world. And so, uh, in that way, uh, God could not be dissuaded. So he wouldn't have been in the garden and said, you know, things, uh, I'll just keep things this way. Forget Jesus, you just take a, a, a break and, and we'll maybe get to you later. Or... You know, the question of, well, why didn't God just snap his fingers and say you're forgiven? Now, actually, the Bible does talk about that. But it was mainly because and primarily because of Jesus coming and rescuing us uh, uh, from uh, our sins. He's of infinite wisdom, uh, power, wisdom, and goodness, uh, that he actually has the ability uh, to affect uh, the affairs of the world, which is why they said maker and preserver. Uh, because you were beginning to see, now the articles went under, underwent some revisions, and in the 16th century, you began to see deism start to, to make some dents. And so you didn't have atheists, but you had people who said God made the universe, but that's as much as he did. He made it, and he kind of wound it up and just left it to go its own course. But the reformers said, no, 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 uh, not only the maker of the universe, he's also the preserver of the universe. Right, he actually has his hands in every last detail of the earth. Now, that doesn't mean that things are fatalistic, uh, but it does mean that God is involved in every minute detail, uh, which actually ought to bring us great comfort because even in the worst of situations, you have to believe that God is at work. It's really hard, especially now with things like, you know, where is God in the midst of hurricanes? Uh, where is God in, in the midst of death? Uh, probably the most powerful story I've ever heard uh, about this was when Frank Limehouse was doing a summer placement when he was in seminary at a church in Washington, D.C., and the church got a call that a, teen- a young teenage boy had died in a car accident, and the parents were at the hospital and wanted their rector to come. The rector asked Frank to go along, and of course Frank wanted to go because he thought, what do you say to a grieving family who's just lost their son? And so they walked in the room. Of course, everybody was completely distraught. They'd cried as much as they possibly could, uh, exhausted of tears even. And uh, the rector went over and uh, sat before uh, the mother and said to the mom, uh, I just want you to know that God had nothing to do with this. And the woman looked up and said to this rector, don't take the only hope away from me that I have. That's faith. It didn't mean she wasn't distraught. It didn't mean she wasn't questioning uh, where is God in all of this. Uh, but what it did mean is that she had to believe that God was somewhere in that uh, and that he would meet her there in that. And so he's not just the maker. He's the preserver of all things. And he operates with power, wisdom, and goodness of all things visible, that is, this, that which we can see, but also behind the scenes, uh, the invisible. And in our last 30 seconds, let's talk about the Trinity. 
that they are one in substance, power, and uh, eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, actually, one of the interesting things that the Augsburg Confession does is it actually brings up Islam. Now, why would people in Germany care anything about Islam? Because the Turks were at the gates of Vienna, remember that? Uh, And so Islam was not some sort of foreign, exotic uh, religion. Uh, It had already made its way on its doorstep in uh, uh, Western Europe. And, of course, indeed, it would move up through Spain uh, even and take over parts of Spain and Portugal. Uh, and, but one of the things that they, that they were up against, uh, and the Orthodox were certainly struggling with this because they were in hostile territory due to the, the growth of, uh, of Islam, uh, but Islam believes that God is one. Right? They're a monotheistic faith. And yet their understanding of God and our understanding of God are different. Are different. Now, the Koran actually lays out a seemingly innumerable number of names for, for God, uh, some of which are incredibly personal names. Uh, but the one name that the Bible uses a very, uh, more often than not is a name that never is used uh, by the Quran, and that's Yahweh, right? I am, right? He's the Lord, often translated as Lord. But here's the thing. If you are, if, if God is one, and we do believe that God is one, but God is three in one, uh, one of the things that you experience is how can a God like that be personal? I mean, that is one of the things that the Trinity actually explains, is that you have three persons uh, who are all one of substance, power, and eternity. Not tritheistic, not three gods, uh, but one God, uh, in three persons, uh, that actually uh, there is a community of of love that exists in that, which is why the Bible talks about God being love, that God is the epitome of love because of the relationship of the Trinity to itself. Where if it was simply the Father, uh, that would actually be an impossibility. It it just just couldn't happen. And so that's why... uh, even in Islam, um, and we can get on this if you, if you want to, uh, I probably should follow up on it, about how Islam's understanding of God is different from our understanding of God. Uh, but suffice it to say uh, is that this belief is a mystery. We're not exactly sure uh, how it works, and there have been lots of people uh, who have uh, tried to explain it, often to their own peril. Uh, I was sitting in a doctrine class my first year of seminary and uh, with Alistair McGrath, and one student said, uh, uh, Alistair, I think I have a new way of describing the Trinity. And McGrath said, before you say anything, just let me say that what you're about to say was probably something that a 5th century monk said, and he was burned for it. <laughs> right. so, so be very careful. So even St. Patrick's shamrock is not exactly uh, helpful in that. And so this is just one of those things that we simply believe as an article uh, of faith. The Bible certainly teaches uh, the Trinity, and, um, and so that is uh, how God has made himself known to us in the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. I didn't even get to half of what I wanted to talk about today, so I might pick it up next time uh, because I want to talk about um, images of God, uh, the second commandment, uh, as well as a couple other little things. Uh, but I'm going to end it there.
Uh, any questions, comments, or concerns? Uh-huh. And this, the, the sermon brought this up, and then with your comments today, can you address if you think that there is a difference or not between the gift of faith or faith as a gift versus the work of faith? Yeah. Well, God has to be the initiator in that. And so you're not going to have faith unless God has initiated that in your life. So your eyes being open to your own condition, but more than that, who Jesus is. And it's only through that work of the Holy Spirit that you're actually able to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. And so it's definitely a response that you have, but it's a response that is initiated by God's work in your life. Now, one of the things that we tend to get caught up on is, um, for instance, in the Gospels where Jesus says, if you have, the, have uh, faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea. What we get caught up on is whether or not we have the faith of the mustard seed rather than the one who is giving the faith. The whole idea is to say, don't, don't navel gaze, but actually look to him, the author and perfecter of your faith, Jesus Christ. Right? And Mark did a good job of talking about that, of keeping your eyes. Faith keeps its eyes focused on him. Over there. I wanted to see if you could enlighten us more about the scripture that says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are and is touched with the feelings of our infirmities and then how God is impassive, Yeah, how that connects. Yeah, so, um, I mean, there is a real sense in which Jesus does identify with us. So his baptism in the River Jordan uh, by John uh, in order to fulfill all righteousness a very visible identification of Jesus with sinful humanity, uh, certainly identifying with us on the cross where Jesus took the sins of the world upon himself, uh, absolutely. Uh, and, and he was tempted in every way as we are, uh, and yet did not sin. So again, that's the outside natural functions of the world actually not able to move him uh, and, and shift that uh, away uh, from his purpose and his nature of who he is as God the Son. Uh, so it's, um, I mean, what Jesus has the ability to do, we, we don't, right? So if we think, well, I can withstand any and all temptations if I just put my mind to it, good luck with that. Um, I did ask once in church, it was a rhetorical question, but somebody raised their hand in the back. I mean, how many of you are able not to sin. And this guy in the back raised his hand, uh, and his wife was sitting next to him, and I couldn't help it. And I said, what does your wife think? Uh, and um, um, I don't think he was listening. But. All right, so this was just a thumbnail sketch. I'm going to get into a little bit. I'm going to go ahead and talk about idolatry a little bit next week. So, um, so be ready for me to talk about stained glass windows. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.